0: The Sydney Harbour Bridge is a massive and imposing structure that looms above the Sydney landscape, an engineering marvel that not only shaped the harbour, but defined it. The name, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, makes perfect sense. It's the bridge that crosses the harbour in Sydney. However, did you know that there was a real push at the beginning of construction that it should actually be called the North Shore Bridge? I feel like this is something most people don't actually know, but probably wouldn't find in the least bit surprising if they're in any way acquainted with Sydney. During its construction, the city, the state and even the country could talk of little else, but nowadays the only time the bridge is really mentioned is if something goes wrong and people are held up in traffic. The monumental effort that was required to get the bridge up, the decades of work, the thousands of people involved. All of it disappears into the hum of a city that forgets that there is history and life etched into its steel and concrete. Out of the stories of those who dedicated years of their lives to seeing this arch completed, one that I've always found particularly fascinating because of its uniqueness is that of Miss Kathleen Muriel Butler, a name that, while making a small comeback these days, has been largely forgotten about for the better part of a century. The funny thing is, if you've done even the shallowest bit of research about the history of the bridge, you most certainly have already seen her photograph. She's in the background of the official shot that was taken of the signing of the tenders on the 24th of March 1924. Why? Well, because not only did she sign as a witness, but she's the one who wrote them up. Kathleen Butler was born in Lithgow in 1891. Her parents were both immigrants, her father English and her mother Irish. Relatively little is known about Butler's early life, but considering her later achievements, some mild speculation can be made. She was one of seven children, and her family at some point moved to Mount Victoria in the Blue Mountains where her father was a station master. Growing up with a large family in a decently isolated part of the world at that time seemed to have instilled in her a love of the outdoors and of sporting activities that she would be noted for quite often later in life, as many would remark on her fitness, health and dedication to maintaining a work-life balance, something that would be rather quaint in the 1920s. Her parents seemed to have an appreciation for education, or perhaps they saw the shrewd intellect in their daughter that needed cultivation, as Butler's schooling was more than the usual few years needed to learn to read and write before being withdrawn from school to help her mother at home, a common fate for many girls at the time. At some point she was actually switched from Mount Victoria's public school and was sent to Mount St Mary's convent in Katoomba. When she was either 16 or 17 she left school and found employment back in Lithgow where in 1907 a testing office had been established to monitor the local ironworks quality output. Her role is listed as being that of a clerk and a typist and she appears to have been there for about 2-3 to three years. Now while this job might at first seem to be simple and rather dry, it was in fact a painstakingly specific role that needed a keen eye for detail and a clear hand for passing those details along. And Butler must have been rather good at it because at the age of 19, her boss in Lithgow, a Mr. Burrow, or possibly somebody further down the line who saw her skill, must have recommended her for higher duties as she received a transfer from the mountains to Sydney to work in the New South Wales Department of Public Works in 1910. And it was here that she met Dr. John Job Crew Bradfield. Dr Bradfield shaped modern-day Sydney and Brisbane too, most notably with the two bridges of his design, the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Story Bridge. And also, did you know that the Story Bridge was actually the original design he'd envisioned for Sydney? The first thing you need to know about Bradfield is that he had a huge head, and I mean this literally – Google a picture of him and see it was bulbous. And I mention this because pretty much every single description that talks about him talks about this, and it would be remiss of me not to do so myself. Bradfield attracted utter respect and a little confusion from his contemporaries due to his stubborn nature and somewhat contradictionary personality. He was known for his focus on his work, yet Jack Lang referred to him as a dreamer. He was a small man, but much stronger than a lot of people expected. He was free and loud with his praise for those that he thought deserved it, and yet, at the same time, he did himself have quite a bit of an ego. But what I personally find the most interesting about Bradfield is that while he could drive a car, he almost never did. Nor did he waste his money on private cars. He almost exclusively took public transport, and whether it be buses through the city, trains through the suburbs, or ferries across the harbour, Bradfield probably knew Sydney's transport network more intimately than any other public servant back then and most certainly had a greater appreciation for what Sydney needed more than most ministers do today. He knew that a city that could not efficiently and effectively move its people could not hope to develop, let alone thrive. And considering that Sydney takes up two and a half times the land space that London does, a vibrant public network is vital. Bradfield these days is known as the father of the bridge, and for good reason. He was pushing government officials and drawing up his own ideas without commission as early as the turn of the 20th century, and after years of spearheading seemingly endless committees and meetings and drafts of gathering the best ideas of finding the most capable people for the job required, the government finally approved Bradfield as chief engineer for Metropolitan Railway Construction and the Sydney Harbour Bridge in 1912. And the very first person he selected to join his staff was Miss Kathleen Butler, who, at the time, was only 21 years old. This is something that would be stunning today, considering her youth and her lack of formal technical training. Though, she had clearly learned from her time at the ironworks in Lithgow and had risen through the ranks of the public works by showing a practicality, precision and work ethic that Bradfield clearly saw and appreciated. Over the next decade, the two strived together to do their best at formulating not only a bridge that the city could be proud of, but also worked on developing a network of trains and trams that could open up even the further suburbs. This sort of planning isn't as simple as picking a good design or going for a good map. They had to calculate things like timings, cost, how much labour would be needed, what they would need to be paid, locations of workshops, figuring out if new workshops needed to be built, creation of tools and equipment, researching if such things could be made in Australia or if they needed to be made overseas, and on top of all that, they still had to deal with the bureaucracy of the government as well as the curiosity of the public. And, you know, a world war. It's very low in the footnotes of history but the great war did postpone the construction of the bridge it was only in 1922 that the dream of a bridge began to cement itself into reality a decade after the government department had been formed for the task in that time butler's official role had changed from typist to confidential secretary and it was a well-regarded fact that when it came to the knowledge of the enormous task of not only building the bridge but of constructing an entirely new network of trains trams and roads Butler was second only to Bradfield in expertise. In fact, in early 1922, when Bradfield departed to travel the world in a fact-finding mission, specifically to gain more insight into the American Hellscape Bridge, it was Butler who took over the Department of Metropolitan Railway Construction in the Sydney Harbour Bridge and acted in lieu of Bradfield with his complete confidence. It was in this time that Butler began her short but essential public relations job, writing more than a dozen articles for the Sydney Mail that helped explain the plans and aspirations of construction in layman's terms to the average Sydney sider. This was somewhat unexplored territory in the 1920s, as the rise of literacy meant that these articles were no longer for a certain kind of gentleman, but now needed to be accessible to all people from all walks of life, and also needed to keep public opinion positive on such a daunting task. All of these were published under her own name, and Kathleen Butler became a well-known figure to anyone with any interest in the bridge. In 1924, when the tenders were finally signed and construction began in earnest, Bradfield released his thesis of the whole thing, titled The City and Suburban Electrical Railways and the Sydney Harbour Bridge. He makes two acknowledgements at the beginning, one to a former teacher, Professor Warren, and the other to Miss Butler. In it, he states, The first officer appointed to the branch was Miss K.M. Butler, now my confidential secretary. She has, at all times, carried out her duties with foresight, tact, and marked ability. In preparing the specification for the Sydney Harbour Bridge, she was my only assistant. The technique of the specification is hers, and I think it would be impossible to find a better arranged or better printed specification. During my absence abroad in 1922, she carried out all correspondence with tenders throughout the world. She is present at all interviews with the tenders in Sydney, and myself accepted, she alone knows many of the issues involving the tendering for the bridge. Her conscientious and efficient help has lightened the responsibility which the design and construction of the two great engineering works have entailed, and in this thesis I wish to place on record my sincere thanks to the lady for her invaluable assistance. Now remember, she left school at 16. She must have had an incredible mind. She was not a hidden figure at all, in fact her picture featured right along the other four men who signed the tenders in 1924, Bradfield, Mr Ball, Minister for the Works and Railways, Mr Cooper, the Under-Secretary for the Works, and Mr Swift, the Private Secretary to the Minister. Later she recalled of the whole thing, We were working on the report six weeks, night and day, because the tenders were all waiting to hear their fate, and we wanted to let them get back to America, England and Canada as soon as possible. I think I know that report and the specification off by heart. Those were exciting days. I was the only woman present in the minister's room when the tenders were opened. It was a most exciting moment. The Sydney newspapers certainly love the novelty of having a 33-year-old woman working on such a grand project, and this is telling in some of the titles that were used in articles about her. For example, Clever Girl in Designer's Office Helps in Gigantic Undertaking. But the following article from the Sunday Times does make up for it. It goes on to say If the worn out term, the weaker sex, meant that women are intellectually inferior to men in brain possibilities, Miss Kathleen Butler, secretary and clerk to Mr. JJC Bradfield, the bridge designer, would put the argument all askew. Mr. Bradfield is the father of the bridge, but Miss Butler is the godmother. This is what Mr. A. E. Ellis, the manager of the Pittsburgh Testing Laboratory declares in a letter recently received by Mr. Bradfield. Mr. Ellis is unknown personally to the designer of the bridge, but he says this. We have made complete study of the plans and specifications covering the construction of the cantilever bridge across Sydney Harbour, and we wish to take this opportunity of complimenting you on being the author of what seems to us to be a more complete and comprehensive specification than any we have thus far encountered in our experience of inspecting large bridges. A structure manufactured and erected in compliance with these specifications would result, in our opinion, of a very high type of bridge. In April 1924, Miss Butler sent off on her own overseas adventure, departing Australia for the United Kingdom, where the loan money had come from, where the company Dorman & Long, who would construct the bridge, resided, and where 80% of the steel would originate. Butler travelled with three other men from the department, Gordon Stuckey, James Holt, and Owen Powers. The quartet were going to oversee the British manufacturing process, but there was no mistaking who was in charge. As when Bradfield was away, Butler now acted once more in his place, and even had the authority to send any men away if she felt that they were stepping out of line with her. A remarkable position of power in the 1920s, but one that didn't seem to be used, as the three men seemed to have a decent amount of respect for her authority on the subject. When in London, she set up the offices at Dorman Long headquarters and proceeded to work alongside her British counterparts, or male, as equipment and steel were shipped and contracts held to, regardless of attempts, at last-minute tweaks. She even travelled to Exotic Middlesbrough to see the manufacturing of the steel for herself. If the Australians found her to be a bit of a novelty, the British most certainly did. She featured in the London Evening Star with a whole column to herself, a rare distinction for any foreigner, let alone an Australian woman. And while it does acknowledge her success, it does so with a particular 1920s English flair. It goes on to say Kathleen Butler is a typical out of doors Australian girl, and she will tell you gaily that when her work is over, she indulges in her favourite vices surf bathing, dancing, and lawn tennis. Her career, Even in a young country where names are made more easily than in an older and more settled community, has been an amazing and romantic one. Ten years ago, she was a clerk in the New South Wales Public Works department without any technical qualification and with no training beyond that which a practical Irish mother had been able to get for her at the convent schools in Sydney, where the girl was educated. Her name was very popular throughout all publications in the Blue Mountains, everyone very pleased with the local girl going so far in the world, proud and eager to claim her as one of their own. And Sydney too was brimming with boastful satisfaction that not only were they building one of the largest steel bridges in the world at the time, but that they were so socially forward as to have their very own bridge girl working on the project. Her invaluable contribution was seen as a hopeful herald of what could lay in the future for more women to follow. In 1925, an article was published in the Sydney Evening News that began with the title of The Strong Sex, which details a speech that was given at a luncheon held for the Professional Women Workers Association in honour of Butler's return from the United Kingdom. It goes on to say, Mrs Williams said that in public life, sex was taken too much into consideration. There should be equality of money, power and influence. Women want to be treated as comrades. We don't want sentimental tosh about man's protecting arm. That is an exploded theory. We want men like Dr. Bradfield to say she has brains and ability and we will put her where she will have a chance to show her powers. We don't want a man's world and we don't want a woman's world, but we want a human world. But the painful truth of the story is As remarkable, as praised, and as necessary as Kathleen Butler was to the success of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, she was not able to see it through to completion, because she got married. It's still one of the most irritating questions, whether a woman can have it all. Well, the answer in 1927 was very clear, no. Legally, this was not possible, as once a woman working in the public sector got married, she was forbidden from holding that job anymore, as her husband would now be providing for her, and that job should be going to a more valuable family man. This was a law that would remain in Australia into the 1960s. The man she married was Maurice Haggerty, a station owner just outside of Kunnamulla in Queensland, who was also six years younger than her. Butler at this point was 36 years old and perhaps she was feeling that this marriage might be her only chance for a family of her own. Perhaps she knew that once the bridge was done there might not be many other opportunities for her in engineering or development. Perhaps she felt that she has done as much as she could with the bridge and was now happy to pass the torch along to someone else. Whatever the reasonings, we'll never know. Because in reality, there is actually very little to know about Kathleen Muriel Butler beyond her work. She's always described as the same, Practical, brilliant, outdoorsy, a robust Australian girl with a good head on her shoulders. While Bradfield is more rounded as a person in history books, his temper and argumentative nature well documented, Butler is seen briefly as a wonder, and then she's gone. Bradfield himself was reportedly devastated to lose the one person with whom he could confer on the subject of the bridge at a level nobody else could achieve. He gifted the happy couple a grandfather clock. In 1931, at the age of 40, Butler gave birth to her only child, a daughter, Anne Josephine. In 1932, her little family returned to Sydney to witness the opening of the bridge, along with a million other people. But Butler was not part of the official opening party. Almost nothing is known about Kathleen Hargerty's life after the bridge, as she appears in tiny little mentions in the newspapers. She appears to have kept in contact with Bradfield and his family, visiting them in Sydney in 1936, bringing Anne along with her. This is how it was reported in the social pages. Miss Maurice Haggerty, of Canamala, Queensland, is at present holidaying in Sydney with her little daughter, Anne Josephine. Before her marriage, Miss Hargerty was Miss Kathleen Butler, who was in charge of the Sydney Harbour Bridge staff during its construction. During her term of office, Miss Hargerty was sent to England. Although she is far removed from the bridge building in her new sphere, Miss Haggerty says that she cannot curb her interest in the new Queensland bridge at Kangaroo Point and feels that she hates to be out of it all. Since she arrived in Sydney at the beginning of the year, Miss Haggerty has seen a great deal of Dr and Mrs JJC Bradfield and Miss Mary Bradfield. Mr Haggerty is at present in Melbourne and they will return to Kunnamulla together after Easter so at 46 years of age kathleen felt that she was out of it all at 46 years of age bradfield had just been appointed to the chief engineer for metropolitan railway construction and the sydney harbour bridge kathleen appears twice more in papers after that once for her sister's wedding and lastly in 1972 in her obituary she was 81 years old Kathleen did, at the end of the day, lead a very privileged and successful life compared to a lot of other people about her in the 1920s, and particularly during the Great Depression of the 1930s. She managed to do extraordinary things in a relatively short time. She got married rich, she had a family, and lived a long life. Yet there is still some sadness, some regret that a lot of people feel when they first hear this story, because hers is not so much a story of a life cut short, but of a life that could have been... Nearly 10 years after her forced retirement, she said it. She said she hated being out of all of it. And that feeling probably followed her for the rest of her life. It does leave you wondering, what more could she have achieved if laws had allowed her? What other women could have followed more rapidly in her footsteps? And are we poorer now, as a city, as a nation, for that lost potential? And how many other lost potentials do we not even know about? One fun fact about Bradfield. He hated the idea of a tunnel. He was always adamant that there should be a bridge, even when naysayers were vehemently against such a thing, destroying the landscape of the harbour. Well, we added a tunnel in 1992, and we're now in the process of drilling more, including our very first rail tunnels, which will cross underneath the harbour. And for that, the workers needed a Mega Tunnel Boring Machine, or a TBM, In 2019, one that was specifically designed to deal with the geological conditions under the harbour was shipped in and placed at its starting point at Blue's Point, ready to drill towards Barangaroo, all in the shadow of the bridge. As with most major pieces of equipment used in mega projects such as these, they couldn't just keep calling it the Mega TBM. So instead, it was christened Kathleen.